There are so many events happening every single day and so many reported stories every day. And it's easy to miss many of them. Some are less significant, others more important. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Each week, I have to determine what to cover, what to address in any given episode. I have to determine what can be ignored entirely. And that's fairly easy to do. But then I also have things that I say, well, I can't get to that now, but hopefully in a future episode. Today, in this episode, it's going to be a combination of all three of those things. There are so many stories and so little time. But in today's episode, I will be dealing with some stories that occurred this past week and others that are older. In some cases, only a couple of weeks old. In other cases, a couple of decades old. But to begin... This morning, Luisa Rice woke up with a 397 batting average. And it's the first time in many days that he has gotten out of bed not hitting 400. He went one for five in the game yesterday. But as the Marlins have played 66 games into the season, and prior to yesterday, for many consecutive days, Arise was over 400, he is one of only five players in the last 70 years to be hitting at this clip this late into the season. Now, of course, it is, even if he was still hitting over 400 as I speak, it is definitely way too early to say, is he going to be the first since Ted Williams in 1941 to hit 400 for the season? There is a long way to go. And in 1941, Ted Williams hit 406, and he's the last batter to hit in Major League Baseball 400 or above. It's really even too early to say, can he match or surpass Tony Gwynn who was hitting 394 in 1994 when the strike hit. It's too early for all of that. It's not too early, however, to recognize that what Luis Arise is doing is outstanding. What an accomplishment. Now, you might be thinking, well, you're a pitching guy. What do you know about hitting? Okay, I'll give you that, although I know a little bit. (laughs) But let's go to people who do know something about hitting. A Hall of Famer, Rod Carew. He tweeted this out last week. What Arise is doing, whether he ends the season above 400 or not, is very impressive. The pressure to swing for the fences and not care about strikeouts is overwhelming. He is doing what he does best and at an elite level. Other players should take note. And then another guy that knows a thing or two about hitting retweeted that and said, Amen, brother. That other guy, like Rod Carew, a Hall of Famer, Wade Boggs. Speaking about people that can hit, yesterday, Andrew McCutcheon picked up his career hit number 2,000 for the Pirates in Pittsburgh. He has returned to the team that he started his illustrious career with, and he was in Pittsburgh when he got hit number 2,000. Congratulations to Andrew McCutcheon. There's another story that's about yeah, a week and a half, maybe two weeks old. And I may cover this more in depth in a future episode, but I want to bring it to your attention. 
because I want you, and especially if I don't cover it in a future episode, to check into this. And what drew my attention to it was that I heard about a guy playing in AAA who got called up to the big leagues. That happens all the time. I heard that what happened was there was a phone call, I think it was the ninth inning of the game in AAA, telling the manager, in this case Rick Sweet, the manager for the AAA team for the Brewers in Nashville, that they needed to take a man out of the game because he was going up. That's not unusual. What caught my attention as I was reading this story is that when the other players who were in the dugout heard that this man was getting called up to the big leagues, the whole dugout erupted in excitement and cheers. And the man being called up by the Milwaukee Brewers was, and he's still in the big leagues, John Singleton. And I thought, well, why did the whole dugout erupt? And then I started reading. John Singleton, called up about a week and a half ago in 2023, has not been in Major League Baseball since 2015. And the reasons why, and all of the things that have taken place in his life in the last eight years, are a story that you need to be familiar with. So check it out. Look into his story. Now, going from stories that are exciting, feel-good stories, stories in which we anticipate what may or may not happen, let's say with Luis Arise, we have to go to some disappointing news. And from my perspective, this should be disappointing news, not only for a particular team, but for all Major League Baseball, all Major League Baseball fans. Last Tuesday... Jacob deGrom, pitching for the Texas Rangers, found out that he has to undergo Tommy John surgery, which means that Jacob deGrom will not pitch again, almost certainly, until at least the beginning of the 2025 baseball season. A huge blow for the Texas Rangers, a team in first place, no doubt, but also a huge blow to Major League Baseball and to its fans, but also a huge blow to Jacob deGrom and a huge blow in ways that sometimes people fail to miss. Listen to DeGrom speaking to the media shortly after he found out that he needed to have Tommy John surgery. It's tough, so, but. All right. You know, I I went through this before, and you know know what it takes to get back. Um, So that's the goal, go out there, you know, rehab as the best I can, and and be around to help, you know, any way I can. Um, you know, we got a special group here. Um, and and then I'll be able to be out there and, you know, help them win, that's, it's tanks. So this is what we love to do, but, you know, finding this out, coming here more. Wanting to be out here and helping the team, you know, it's a, it's a disappointment. So, I trust, even though you were not able to watch the video of that, that you could tell from the audio alone how much Jacob deGrom was struggling with that news and talking to the media about that news. And I play this to indicate something that sometimes I think we lose sight of. And that is this that for many, and I would say the vast majority of Major League Baseball players, and I would say especially Major League Baseball players who understand that it's about helping your team win, it is not all about the money. Jacob deGrom has made a lot of money. Jacob deGrom just signed a very large contract with the Texas Rangers this past offseason. 
he is not struggling to meet with the media and express his thoughts about what's going on because he's worried about money. He's struggling because he wants to pitch. He wants to play the game. He wants to be a part of his team and help his team win because winning matters. And to the best players to ever play this game, they understand that. And I'll talk about another player that was like that when he played a little bit later in this episode. But again, a huge blow, not just to the Texas Rangers, but to Major League Baseball and its fans. On the flip side, there was some news also last week on Tuesday that ought to be exciting, not only for a particular team, in this case the Cincinnati Reds, but for Major League Baseball and for Major League Baseball fans. On the same day that DeGrom found out he needed Tommy John surgery, a young man was called up from the minor leagues to the big leagues for the Cincinnati Reds. This young man was rated the number four overall prospect in baseball and the number one prospect for the Reds. And he played his first Major League Baseball game on Tuesday, and he picked up his first Major League hit in that game. I'm going to play the clip of that hit. Listen very carefully at the beginning of the sound of the bat hitting the ball. Smash to right center. First big league hit, and here he goes. Lightning speed. De La Cruz up to second. A stand-up double. That was Ellie De La Cruz, his first major league hit. And again, that sound, if you're a baseball fan, is a beautiful sound. Now, if you're standing on the mound and you threw the pitch, it's not such a beautiful sound. But it's a beautiful sound as a baseball fan. And it's a sound that is unique. It is not one you hear all of the time. And that pitch was a fastball up. And from what I could tell, it looked like it might have been even up out of the zone. And he got on top of it and absolutely smoked it for the double. Now, Ellie De La Cruz is 21 years old. He's from the Dominican Republic. And again, just called up about a week ago. He is a five-tool player. And I tell you what, he has hit the ball very, very hard. He has got an absolute cannon from third base, and he can fly. And in his first week, he's hitting over 360. That clip was from his first game. In his second game, he hit an absolute bomb for a home run and then a triple. And to watch this guy run and leg out a triple is truly a thing of beauty. And then he also, I think it was yesterday, had an infield hit, and he also scored from third with the infield in on a ground ball to short. What a fun man to watch play the game of baseball. He had, in his first three games, a single, double, triple, home run, and stolen base. Since 1901, he is only the second player in Major League Baseball to do that, and the first in 70 years. What an exciting thing if you are a Cincinnati Reds baseball fan. But I would say also if you are a baseball fan generally. Now, of course, there are people who have gotten off to very, very slow starts in their first week or even their first season of Major League Baseball that have had outstanding careers. And there are people who have gotten off to an extremely hot start and their careers kind of fizzled. It's too early to say what's going to happen, but it's not too early to say this guy is a joy to watch play the game. Now last week, I think it was shortly after I dropped the episode last Monday, that I read the news, and the news involved the death of a man who was my first Major League Manager. Roger Craig died last week, I think it was actually a week ago Sunday, at 93 years old. 
As I mentioned, he was my first major league manager. I was called up the first time to the major leagues in 1990 with the San Francisco Giants. And at that time, he was the manager of the San Francisco Giants. I think many people know Roger Craig, the manager, maybe even more so, or at least equally so, Roger Craig, the pitching coach. Some people don't understand the kind of athlete Roger Craig was, nor the kind of major league career that he had as a pitcher. Roger Craig played basketball at NC State. Roger Craig had a 12-year career as a pitcher in Major League Baseball, and it was a very good career. He played on a World Series championship team, and I said as he played, he was on one as a player and as a pitching coach with the 1984 Detroit Tigers. He never won one as a manager, but he was the manager of the Giants in the World Series in 1989, the Bay Bridge Series, where they lost to the A's, and also where the Great Earthquake took place to interrupt that World Series. And the reason some people may be as familiar or more familiar with him as a pitching coach is because he was kind of the guru of the split-finger fastball. He taught it really to the entire Detroit Tigers pitching staff when he was their pitching coach, but in particular to Jack Morris, who became a Hall of Famer, and he brought it with him to San Francisco and taught it to many of the pitchers with the Giants. Now, one of his players, a man who also had Roger Craig as his first ever Major League Baseball player, was Will Clark. And Will tweeted this out, Hum baby. And if you don't know, that was a very common statement by Roger Craig. Hum baby, my second dad and the man who taught me the game of baseball. It was my pleasure playing for such a great manager and person. And he ended by saying, all my best to your wonderful family. Now, as I started looking into different things about Roger Craig, I came across this clip, and it's actually from a ceremony last summer in San Francisco when Will Clark had his number retired for the Giants. And Roger Craig couldn't be there in person, but he sent a message to Will Clark via the video board. Here's what he had to say. From the humbaby himself, on the video board, Roger Craig. Will, this is a humbaby, remember me? Yeah, I got on your butt a lot of times. I want to congratulate you, you were a great ball player. But you'd have been a lot better if you'd have listened to me. That is classic Roger Craig right there. What a great story. And Will Clark was asked by Eric Burns. They do a little, I don't know if you would call it a podcast. I'm not sure exactly what it's called. But nonetheless, they do something together. And Eric Burns asked Will Clark, give me your favorite Roger Craig story. That one's easy. The day that they told me I won the, the job in the major leagues, I I was I was kind of swinging the bat real well. I was three for four that day. I had hit my second double, and I was just kind of taking it easy, but I was on second base. The third base coach looks at me and he goes, hey, Roger wants you to come off the field. And I look in the dugout, and he's, he's like this. He's giving me one of these numbers, and I'm like, no. And so he, like, stands up, and he gets kind of all flustered, and the third base coach is like, you got to come off the field. I'm like, no. And so finally the third base coach calls timeout. He comes out comes out to the second base. He goes, hey, man, you got to come off the field. Roger's, Roger's about ready to chew my butt down here. As soon as I get in the dugout, Roger goes, I want to see you in my office. Now the game's going on, and we go down the steps, and we're in his office. He's like, don't you ever show me up like that on the field. 
And I go, don't you ever take me out of a game when I'm three for three. And uh, so he says, I'm the manager. And if you're going to be my first baseman, you're going to have to listen to what I say. And I go, what? Your first baseman? He goes, yes. He goes, you have made the Major League Ball Club. Welcome to the San Francisco Giants. And I go, oh, my God. I just sat down. I said, don't worry. I said, I'll never show you up again. I said, you know, I'm going to follow your lead and all that. I said, but don't ever take me out of a game when I'm three for three. So that's a great story, and it adds some very important context to the words that Roger Craig spoke to Will Clark last summer in that video message. And from my perspective, at least, it's remarkable to consider the fact that Will Clark has ever been at a loss for words. But now I need to talk about Roger Craig a little bit myself. I first met him in 1989. At the time, I was playing in high A ball for the Giants, and that team was in San Jose, California, so only about an hour down the road from San Francisco. And we had an off day, and a number of us players went to San Francisco to watch the Giants game that day. And being part of the system, that allowed us to be in the clubhouse and in the dugout before the game, during batting practice. And as I walked into the dugout, at the end of the dugout was Roger Craig. And that's the first time that I ever met him. Now fast forward to the next spring training, 1990. There is the lockout of the owners for the players. So there's no Major League Baseball going on. No camp, no Major League players anywhere in sight. And so what that did is that allowed Al Rosen, the general manager of the San Francisco Giants, and Roger Craig, the manager, to come to the minor league complex on a regular basis. They may have been there daily. I don't know. I know they were there a lot. And that allowed them to see a number of us, including me. They got to see me pitch often, which they would not have done had there not been the lockout. Later that summer, in August of 1990, I get called up. And therefore, Roger Craig is my first Major League Manager. And I remember a conversation that the two of us had the day after I picked up my first Major League win. I pitched either two and a third or two and two-thirds innings against the Padres and got the win. So after batting practice, Roger and I are walking down the tunnel, and he says to me, congratulations on your first Major League win. I said, thank you very much. He said, I know you're not available for me tonight because of what you did yesterday. And he stopped. And I said, Roger, I'm available whenever you need me. And he looked down at me. He was a big man, about 6'4". He looked down at me and he smiled. And he said, that's the answer I wanted to hear, big boy. And I think about that. And I think about Roger Craig. And, uh, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity or have had the opportunity to play for him. Now, in doing some research on Roger Craig... And seeing that video of him speaking to Will Clark, I watched more of the video of that day, the day last summer when Will had his number retired. And it wasn't just Roger Craig who told stories and paid tribute, but others, including Mike Kruko. I looked over at first base, and here was Will Clark walking over the mound towards me. He walked up to the mound, and he said, Hey, if we're going to win this game, you're going to have to do better than that. And so the Will Clark era had begun. He strapped it on every day with one goal in mind, to win that game. That was the thrill. And he had that something. And from all of us here today, thank you. It was a privilege to watch you play. That from Mike Kruko, a very good Major League Baseball pitcher who pitched at the end of his career for the San Francisco Giants and therefore played with Will Clark and has been a broadcaster for that team for decades. And you could hear the emotion in his voice when he said, 
it was a privilege for us all to watch you play. And Kruko understood the kind of player Will Clark was. And Kruko was that kind of player. Kruko was also like that as a pitcher. And that's why he appreciates so much Will Clark. And I remember having a conversation back in the early 1990s with a, a former coach of mine who had played professional baseball, actually played minor league baseball with the San Francisco Giants. And we were talking about Will Clark and also Matt Williams, but this is about Will Clark, so we'll stick to him. But the same thing is true about Matt Williams. But I said to this former coach of mine and friend of mine, here's the thing about Will Clark. It wouldn't matter if he was making $8,000 a year or $8 million a year. And remember, in the early 1990s, $8 million was a whole lot more money than it is today. I said, it doesn't matter if he was making $8,000 or $8 million. Will Clark would play the game the same way. He would play the game hard. He would play the game with intensity and tenacity. He would give you everything he had on any given day, and he would do so to help his team win. And I know this. If any of my former teammates were to say that about me, I would be very, very happy. The only way it could be improved upon is if they added to those things and he played the game for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've got to tell some Will Clark stories as well. I've got to pay him tribute. I've got to acknowledge his greatness in multiple ways, obviously as a player. But Will Clark was extremely kind to me. After my first full season of professional baseball, which was 1988, I played in low A ball in the Midwest League for Clinton, Iowa. That winter, it was actually January and into February of 1990, I went down to New Orleans. I went down there on my own initiative to work out or be trained by a guy named Mackie Shillstone. At that same time, the San Francisco Giants had sent Matt Williams to go down there to work with him, and Will lived, and I'm assuming still does, in New Orleans. And so here's this young guy, at least as it regards baseball, now working out with and throwing BP pretty much every day to an up-and-coming superstar in Matt Williams and an established superstar in Will Clark. And while I was down there during that time, I think it was sometime in January, maybe early February of 1990, Will Clark, I'm sorry, 1989, Will Clark negotiated a contract with Al Rosen, the general manager in the San Francisco Giants, which made Will Clark the first ever player for the Giants to earn $1 million or more. And now this story was not told to me by Will, but by his father. After that contract was agreed to, and before the conversation ended, before they hung up the phone, Will Clark said to Al Rosen, hey, there's a kid down here that you need to pay attention to. Then now as we go to 1989... I'm in San Jose, as I mentioned, and we're getting on the bus at 8 or 9 in the morning to head down, say, to Southern California to play uh, down there. And Will Clark is on the radio with a San Jose radio station, and somehow, in the course of the interview, he works into the interview his praise of me. And I was greatly appreciative. Of course, my teammates gave me a, a hard time for that. And now we go to 1989 when I went to Candlestick and I walked in the dugout and I saw and for the first time met Roger Craig. And between me and Roger Craig, Roger Craig was at the far end of the dugout. I just came through the tunnel on the near end, stood Will Clark. And when Will saw me, he turned to Roger Craig and said, Roger, 
This is the guy right here I have been telling you about. All of that played a factor into what Roger Craig was looking at in spring training 1990 when there was the lockout. All of that played a factor into the fact that after the lockout ended, I was asked to come and pitch for the big league team in big league spring training games. And of course, then ultimately a few months later, called to the major leagues. And I've got to say again about Will Clark, he was a winner. And winning is the objective of the game. It's not win at any cost. You don't win by cheating. It's not winning for your own glory or to increase your brand. But nonetheless, the objective of the game is to win. And there is a team that has won in an incredible fashion. And that brings me to something I have never done before in the bullpen. And that is talk about softball. In particular, college softball. Last week, the Oklahoma Sooners women's softball team won their 53rd straight game and third consecutive NCAA championship. They did so with a 3-1 win over Florida State. And there's one thing that you can be sure of when a team wins 53 straight games and has a three-peat championship team or teams. And that is this, that the head coach and her staff, that what you see in the performance is due to tenacious preparation. Getting these young ladies ready for the opportunities that may present themselves during the game so that they can capitalize on them and win the game. But here's the thing. That is not only evident in what takes place on the field, that they have been prepared for opportunities, they're ready to take advantage of them, but it was demonstrated as well that they have been prepared for opportunities off the field. We've got a back row left. Alex, start with ESPN for, for the players. I know you talked about keeping the joy of the game, but I'm curious. It's a long season, right? And you guys have had the target on your back the entire time, the win streak being number one. How do you handle the unique pressure that comes with that? How do you keep the joy for so long when anxiety seems like a thing that could very easily set in? Well, the only way that you can have a joy that doesn't fade away is from the Lord. And any other type of joy is actually happiness that comes from circumstances and outcomes. Um, I think Coach has said this before, but joy from the Lord is really the only thing that can keep you motivated, um, uh, just in a good mindset, uh, no matter the outcomes. Thankfully, we've had a lot of success this year, but if it was the other way around, uh, joy from the Lord is the only thing that can keep you embracing those memories, moments, friendships, and all of that. So uh, I would, that's really the only, the only answer to that because there's no other way that softball can bring you that um, because of how much failure comes in it and just how much of a roller coaster the game can be. 1,000% agree with Grace Lyons. Um, I went through that my freshman year. I I was so happy to win the college. I've talked about this before, but I was just so happy that we won the College World Series, but I didn't feel joy. I didn't have, I didn't know what to do the next day. I didn't know what to do for that following week. I didn't feel filled, and I had to find Christ in that, and I think that is what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because if it's not the end of the world if we do lose. Yes, obviously we've worked our butts off to be here and we want to win, but it's not the end of the world because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Yeah, um, I think a huge thing that we've really just latched onto is eyes up. And you guys see us doing this and pointing up, but we're really like fixing our eyes on Christ. And that's something where, like they were saying, you can't find a fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. And 
Um, I think that's why we're so steady in what we do and, and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know this game is giving us the opportunity to glorify God. Mm-hmm. And um, I just think once we figured that out and that was our purpose and everyone was all in with that, um, it's really changed so much for us. And, I mean, I know myself, I, I've seen so much of a growth in myself with um, once I turned to Jesus and I realized how he had changed my outlook on life, not just softball, but understanding how much I have to live for and that's living to exemplify the kingdom and I think that brings so much freedom and I'm sure everyone's story is similar but we all have those great testimonies that have really like shown how awesome it is to play for something bigger Um, and I think that's just what brings me so much joy and no matter the outcome whether we get a trophy in the end or not we're this isn't our home and I think that's what's amazing about it is we have so much more we have an eternity of joy with our father and I'm so excited about that and yes I live in the moment but I know this isn't my home and um, no matter what, my sisters in Christ will be there with me in the end um, when we're with our, our king. So, There you have the ultimate reason why I brought up softball on a baseball podcast. That was a national press conference. You heard the reporter that asked the question was from ESPN that took place prior to their third consecutive national championship. Somebody wrote about that, that it was likely the best sports press conference of all time. And I would say there's a legitimate argument to be made that that is a true statement. That's how it's done. Clear, bold, loving testimony to the glory of King Jesus. And I've seen nothing but praise for these three young ladies. And they were up there on stage or in the press conference with their coach sitting alongside of them. But I'm guessing that these young ladies likely understand that they may suffer repercussions somewhere at some time for what they said. But I don't think they're concerned about that. I'm confident they're very familiar with the words of King Jesus. He said, It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? These three young ladies confessed Jesus before men. A national audience. They aren't afraid to get their eyes up, fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, and they appear very ready to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. Praise be to them, and congratulations for a three-peat as national champions. Now, we have a contrasting story to these three young ladies and to the success of the Oklahoma, Oklahoma Sooners baseball team, and that is Anthony Bass, one who confesses the Lord as well, and tried to appease the enemies of our God. Anthony Bass had been a pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays. Early on Friday, it was being reported that he was going to catch the first pitch of that night's game, which was a Pride Night game. A couple of hours later, we read that he was designated for assignment by the Toronto Blue Jays. Now here's the question. Was he DFA'd? because he said he would not catch that first pitch. I don't know. Maybe we will hear the rest of that story sometime soon. But here's the thing. He's not been having a great year. Nonetheless, he is a veteran relief pitcher who has had success. And being designated for assignment, if he clears waivers, means that any of the other teams, so 29 teams, have the opportunity to get a veteran Major League Baseball relief pitcher for the pro-rated minimum. In other words, they can pay him, as a veteran relief pitcher, the same salary they'd have to pay for a guy that's never played in the big leagues that they call up 
from AA. Now, here's the question. What's going to happen? I'm waiting to see what's going to happen. And I trust you understand the significance of what will or will not happen. If there is no team, none of the 29 teams willing to sign him, that is significant not only to him, not only to others in Major League Baseball, but it is significant for you and for me. And we should take note. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.